I don't know about you guys, but I sleep well at night knowing that I do my bit in combating climate change by tolerating those awful paper straws at restaurants with the bits that come off in my mouth. And my question is, while I choke on my half-masticated straw, what is big business doing? Let's find out. Daily Maverick's resident pinup Ray McClaka is in conversation with Dr. Iraj Abidian, CEO of Pan-African Capital Holdings, Wendy Engel, Senior Manager in Charge of Sustainable Finance at WWF South Africa, and Desne Leafkamp, Senior Financial Advisor at NG Southern Africa. Please welcome them. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, we have a very difficult task of keeping you engaged and interested on Friday afternoon. Um, so I hope we're going to keep you inspired and engaged. Uh, the goal of this discussion is to talk about uh, the business response to the climate crisis. Business has the money. Business has the influence. Business makes the investment decisions that can either be harmful or helpful uh, to the environment, well-being of society at large as well. And we know that business hasn't really been on the good side in, in many moments when it comes to the climate crisis. So welcome, everybody, and welcome to this panel. Uh, Desne, maybe let me start with you. The climate crisis is broad. There's the energy part of the crisis uh, where fossil fuels are used, such as coal, to generate electricity. The climate crisis also speaks to water quality, water, uh, water uh, security. The climate crisis also speaks to food security as well. Do you think business has an all-encompassing approach to addressing the climate crisis? If you look at it as all-encompassing, Ray, good afternoon, everybody. So first of all, I've graduated. I am no longer a um, financial advisor. I now manage a concentrated solar power plant in the Northern Cape. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Which means that my focus is less on the broader business picture and a lot more on local communities. So we'll talk about that a little later. But coming back to Ray's question, um, so for me, my focus has shifted from what Kumi mentioned to us earlier, of moving from the mind to the heart. So indeed, when I started out in this industry, the big focus was our greenhouse gas emissions. And that has allowed us to participate in a narrative that forgets about what Kumi reminded us and challenged us this earlier this afternoon, um, and that is to bring it back home and to recognize that a large portion of the population, particularly in the global south, are not contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. So when I go out into the communities, what I see is not lack of access to electricity. What I see is lack of access to clean water. What I see is lack of access to arable land, particularly in the Northern Cape. Um, one of the questions that had been raised earlier, again, that the session be, um, just prior to this one was, where are we? 1.5 degrees, 1.4 degrees, 1.2 degrees. It was interesting to see people raise their hands. And while we debate what could be happening tomorrow or in the future, our people in the communities are dying today. 
They are dying because they don't have access to water. And I think as business, we, we're focusing so much on, and I don't even want to call it the bigger picture, but it is what is, we're focusing on the crisis of the future as opposed to the reality of today. Thank you, Desne. Wendy, let's bring you in. Wendy Angle is with um, the World Wildlife Fund in South Africa. Uh, can, can I just bring you in here? Because let, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Uh, we are in the throes of an electricity crisis through blackouts. So one would say, sure, business should focus on the energy issue because it is the most pressing issue right now. Is that fair at all? Thanks, Ray. So Worldwide Fund for Nature. Um, so just to, to share, I'm at WWF. I'm also a farmer. I'm also a mom um, and uh, live in this beautiful uh, province. Um, so to respond to your question, yes, um, in the short term, we are in a crisis. At WWF, the cornerstone of what we do is around valuing nature. We know that the current economic system, financial system, doesn't adequately value nature, doesn't send a price signal to value nature. So for us, the climate crisis needs to be located within the broader crisis around biodiversity and nature loss. And so in our work with business and the finance sector, we like to look at it from a risk lens. It's important to understand what the risks are and to address them. It's also important to look at the opportunities. So we're in a crisis, and in that crisis, we need to look at where are those investment opportunities. And I can just say, share one sector um, where we've done quite a lot of research to see where are the climate investment opportunities in the agricultural sector, which some people might be surprised at. It is a sector that helps us to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but also to adapt and so in a country that has high levels of inequality and unemployment, the agricultural sector across a range of what we call conservation agriculture, regenerative agriculture, ag tech has the opportunity to give us those investment opportunities and address both those social and environmental challenges. Yeah, I wonder if we are even starting to think about the opportunities that are there. Uh, but for me, uh, an immediate crisis is a lot of businesses are burning a lot of diesel at the moment um, to survive load shedding. And um, maybe that goes against their own you know, emissions reduction targets. But a, that's a conversation for later. Um, Iraj, let's bring you in here. You are close to business. You are close to capital. Uh, you have sat on boards of companies um, in the public and private sector. Um, do you think there's a sense of urgency in business circles to deal with the climate crisis? I ask this because, um, you know, an acronym that's very popular at the moment is ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance. It has become a buzzword at the moment. But is business truly embracing the spirit of ESG or just paying lip service to it at the moment? Yeah, first of all, thank you very much for uh, the opportunity to be here. Um, with respect to your question, the reality is that there is a major disconnect. Corporates, especially the listed ones, they are by the listing um, stock exchanges, they are expected to have ESG mandate or some other piece of paper which is in our website in an annual report. Um, we report to the stock exchange, the shareholders know that we have it, but when they go to the boardroom, they don't know where to start. Really worse than our Minister of Energy, just they talk about it, but they 
at the end of the meeting, you say, okay, so what? What did you decide to do? What production process is going to change? What type of remuneration uh, sort of patterns are going to change? What type of community engagement is going to change? The very fact that they have signed off, the board has signed off on ESG, they think they've done it. To be fair to them, even in the sector ESG, the so-called experts, every other day they change their mind. So you, you appoint a set of consultants. This is now the Rolls Royce of ESG. They come and charge you the earth. They, they kick up a lot of fuss to force you to, 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 to employ them. But then three months later, they say, no, but this has changed. This doesn't work. Now, if you're sitting at the board, what do you do? Do you go with something that you think you understand, whereas the expert doesn't understand? It's a little bit like, you know you have a problem, you go to the doctor, and then you realize the doctor himself or herself doesn't know where to start. So we are in that disconnect at the moment. There's an urgency everybody understands. How to go about it, nobody knows. We do certain things. We mustn't be dismissive of some of the good ones. The, the last point I'd like to make is that there is a disconnect between legislation, regulation that businesses are obliged to comply with and what needs to be done to deal with the realities of the environment as you and I experience it. So there is an absolute confusion here. Uh, uh, companies are forced to spend a lot of money and yet on the ground there is very little impact. We mustn't also add and lump all the businesses together. Is there, I'm going to be really silly here <laughs> and challenging here. Is there an example of a company that has approached ESG badly that we can think of at the moment? The, the worst one in South Africa, of course. Look at Sassel, our, our flagship, is the worst polluter in the country. We know it. So ESCOM, of course, is competing with, with Sassel. The two of them are the two top champions in destroying the environment, and they manage, for uh, obvious reasons, to get exemption year after year after year, and ministry issues exemption. So, uh, so that, that's an example of how you can uh, sort of get away with it. And the executives, they see share price going up, they're happy, they get their bonuses, and next year they come to the AGM. They know they have to report to this. They talk to it for 20, 15 minutes, but back in the room, they get their lawyer to write to the minister to get exemption on some or other ground, and because the country has got unemployment, poverty, all this stuff that we all know, the minister has to scratch his head and says, look, if it's the choices between 20,000 more unemployed or giving another year of exemption, um, I grant the exemption. That's the reality of it. And side note, that petrochemicals company misses, uh, has over the past three years missed its own emissions reduction targets as well, and it wants to reduce emissions by 30% uh, by 2030 or so. But let's bring you in here, Desne. What should be the right approach uh, to good ESG? What, should, what is the features of a good ESG, for example? I wish it, the acronym started with G. Yeah. Because I think it governance. All, it's all starts with governance. If you don't have the governance structure in place, then it becomes a tick-the-box exercise for the environmental um, and social. The challenge with the governance... So if I look at where I sit, 
I not only report to a board, to shareholders, but I also report to lenders. And in my lenders group, I've got commercial lenders and I've got development banks. And the development banks are the most difficult one. Um, they send you a list of questions. And it becomes literally a tick-the-box exercise because even when you look at the questions, how many women have you employed? 550. But there's no question about in what positions have these women been employed? What is the quality of that employment? Um, so we're not even getting down to the fundamentals when we do the, the reporting. And for me, that's, that, that's problematic. And then I think on the governance side, it's the who really are you accountable to? Are you being accountable to the... So again, look at the energy sector and renewable energy projects. We are surrounded by a community. They are our stakeholders. But when I'm reporting, that's not who I'm reporting to. When it comes to mandatory reporting, I'm reporting to a board and I'm reporting to, le to lenders, to shareholders. If we had to expand that reporting also to the communities in which these projects operate, um, we need to then change the way we tick those boxes or define those boxes so they don't just become tick-the-box tick exercise. Mm. And Wendy, um, Desne talked about a very important word, accountability. Um, I mean, there's a term, another term called greenwashing. This is when companies purport to be sustainable, but they, in, in actuality, they're not. They're just spending a lot of money on marketing and PR to appear mm. that they are sustainable. How do we hold those companies accountable? Uh, does, it lie, does the power lie with everybody in this room? Because everybody in this room has purchasing power. Sure. They can choose to boycott that company. Um, if you're a shareholder, do you take an activist stance uh, where you really challenge uh, you know, these companies uh, that are found to you know, engage in greenwashing. I just wonder, what are the avenues of accountability that is available to everybody here? Yeah, great question, Ray. So I agree we need to look at multiple options um, and starting off with improving your own level of understanding and literacy um, is a good starting point. We know, um, just by way of example, we work a lot with the finance sector, that generally in South Africa there's very low levels of financial literacy, so often people are quite intimidated when they engage with a financial advisor or looking at a suite of products. So I think probably that's the starting point, because like you say, you can vote with your feet. Um, it's a bit easier on like products around um, the food, um, you know, kind of consumer goods, because um, I think people have got a longer history of engagement with those products. Then I think if we talk about broader uh, environmental social governance, um, we, we do have guidance from what we call voluntary frameworks. So there are some standards that have, are very robust. Um, there's science behind it. There are independent organizations that verify them. So let's also you know, don't try and reinvent the wheel. There are a lot of those available. Um, and so when we hold companies to account and the finance sector account, let's use those examples that exist and make sure that it's not, like you're saying, it's not only about reporting on the very minimum level of metrics, but let's delve a little bit deeper into, into those reporting. Yeah. And, and Raj, can we trust business? To really, and I ask this uh, because, um, first of all, the question is, can we trust business uh, to address the, the climate crisis? Because 
the role of business has been checkered, especially in South Africa. We come from the years of state capture when, where business was very complicit in high-level corruption. So, so can we ask business to have a conscience here and, and do right? Yeah, I think businesses are not mechanical beings. Businesses are people sitting, mm -hmm. running. If the society is ethical, if the society is trustworthy, that business can be trusted, that politician can be trusted, that citizen can be trusted. So I think we mustn't fool ourselves that business people are full from some unknown place. They're in our families. They, they are yeah. part of our thinking. If we don't comply as citizens of South Africa, if we do not have a culture of compliance, respect for the environment, respect for law, rest assured, if we, each one of us, sit in the chair of the CEO, that culture will carry yes. us. We will, we will be a bit more sophisticated in displaying and managing the brand because we'll have resources to have a brand manager, to have a PR company. They'll manage our mistakes. But the issue is this. If we, can, if we are at a point that we cannot trust our business, means there is a trust issue in the society. If you can't trust your business, you cannot trust your politician either. You can't trust your regulator either. You cannot, at the margin, trust anybody. So my answer is business is, very, at the moment, very diverse. There are some very wonderful, trustworthy people. There were businesses who intentionally and actually uh, and proactively distanced themselves from state capture. And some of them paid the price for it. And there were those who actively <laughs> cultivated it and embraced it, made a few billion, and they ran away, or they hide away from justice. So I think business is not homogeneous, the same way that we cannot say all South Africans don't have the culture of compliance. All, we must avoid that. My plea is we got to partner with, promote, and cultivate those businesses who are on the right side of the environmental attempt, at least. And I sit on a couple of boards, and I can see really genuinely they pay a price for doing the best that they can in the sector. And these sectors that I'm involved in, I'm not in, involved in many, but the ones that I've been involved in, in, in marine services, in agriculture, in, in um, financial sector, and I see some of them genuinely want to do it. But they're also desperate. They don't know what to do. What confuses the system is, and this is my last point on this, when we talk about trust, the society and the environment is a system. You cannot segment it and deal with one part of it hoping that the rest will work out. For example, you can have we're separating environment, sustainability, governance, as if these are three totally distinct, unrelated type of things. They are the same thing. If you want to have social sustainability, you've got to govern well, you've got to take care and respect the environment. If you want to have environmental sustainability, you should have governance. So we need to increasingly change the discourse in the society that we are operating within a system. If we mess up one part of it, the rest will not remain immune to being corrupted. So if you feel, Ray, that businesses cannot be trusted, we need to have a discourse in the society. Why? Well, because we are either share, all of us are shareholders <laughs> yeah. of these businesses in one yeah. way or another. We are all the stakeholders of these businesses. We are, I mean, you mentioned your consumer. I would go even more activism on shareholders on our pension funds. Some of you may get bored when I sit on this panel and say, when last time did you go to your pension fund managers and say, 
I like to know where you're spending my, my hard-earned money. And ask yourself, I'm not coming either to ask you to raise your hand, but you know how many of you went last time to your fund managers and, and, and uh, hold them accountable. They're dealing with your pension and my pension fund. But and they go and vote for this chairman, that CEO, and without taking them into account. Mm. So we need to get real. And if you want my CEO to be active, I need to be active to hold them accountable. I pay them. If you want my minister to be active and to be doing the right thing, we got to hold them into accountable and so on and so forth. It's a cultural issue that we need to rise up to. Yeah. It's, it's quite difficult. Yeah. It's quite difficult because even the people who manage our money, our pension savings, retirement annuities, um, where they make investment allocations, for example, if coal prices are quite hot at the moment, <laughs> they tend to allocate money there. So it, it doesn't seem like we have many avenues uh, for holding them ac uh, accountable. Uh, but, uh, you know, Desne, a question about ESG for you. Uh, we're taking audience questions, by the way, at this juncture. Um, someone asks about... What about JSC guidelines on ESG? How have these been adopted by listed companies? I ask this because it's quite hard to measure ESG uh, uh, principles and how companies are performing against them. I, I don't think there are set uh, uh, guidelines even in place. Uh, but this person asks, um, what about the JSC's role in, in tracking ESG uh, achievements? Ray, I'm going to defer that question to, to Wendy, um, only because it's not an area, and I'm going to be honest with the audience, this is not an area of my, my expertise. Um, as I said to you, where I sit today, my focus is more on addressing the challenges that the communities um, face. Yes, I am reporting on, on, on ESG, but I am not unpacking what's, what's behind it. I am trying to report on what I am actually seeing, witnessing, and experiencing on the ground. And in that way, being more truthful and more relevant in that reporting. And maybe let's stick with that. And Wendy, I'll bring you into sure. to the questions. What do communities need? Where is the need the most? And where can business join in in, in addressing the needs of communities? I'm going to answer that question by reflecting on how much we spend as business, and I'm going to talk specifically about an industry I'm familiar with, in courting government and institutions of the state to get our operation, operating licenses, right? So we hire experts, um, lawyers, to do what is necessary for us to get our license. But that same effort, that same employment of resources doesn't get employed in courting our social license to operate. And for me, that is problematic. Also, the bigger business gets, the more amorphous it becomes. And the more detached we as society feel from the business, and that's where this level of distrust comes in. We forget who our ultimate beneficiary, not customers, ultimate beneficiaries are. My customer is ESCOM, 
But my ultimate beneficiary is the electricity consumer. The electricity consumer is sitting in this room and the electricity consumer is sitting in Kaya And when I lose focus of who those beneficiaries are, then I don't think about the quality of service that I'm trying to provide to the ultimate beneficiary. Interesting. We have about six minutes left. Uh, Wendy, that question about ESG. Um, sure. What are the JSC's guidelines on, on ESG? So at WWF, we're fortunate to be part of a global network. So we work with um, countries across the globe. And often we do get um, the feedback that the South African JSC is leading in terms of issues of sustainability and ESG. So I think probably just to start off with that. But I think what's also, it, it's a great step forward to have those disclosure guidance uh, notes but they are also voluntary so i think to your point earlier raj about taking accountability those are voluntary and for for those listed companies we need to be more activist in terms of i know i'm sure i don't know how many people read the annual reports of the the listed companies page to page but you know if you if you have your pension fund is invested in those companies that you know that's the starting point to understand, like you're saying. So even if you have that disclosure guidance framework, you know, you need to delve into those details and say, is that sufficient in terms of, of the reporting that they're providing? Uh, there's a question about or a comment, uh, and maybe Iraj, you can take this. Um, Heinrich says, uh, although we can vote with our wallets, do we need legislation to force businesses to change by banning things like plastics? So, enforcing change through legislature and punishment, I guess. There is definitely a role for legislation, without a doubt. Um, but legislation without enforcement, without prior analysis of what we call it policy impact analysis before the introduction of legislation, is a disaster. So, and unfortunately, the government about 15 years ago, through out literally disbanded a section of the national treasury that had to do with what is called policy impact analysis. You mentioned, and I'm all for legislation because without legislation, business cannot operate. We don't know how to deal with the systemic issues. But legislation requires enforcement and requires um, adaptability. The, the unfortunate thing in our country and in many emerging economies, and in fact the majority of countries, is that you, you go through a whole lot of process, you introduce a piece of legislation, and then you forget about it. Game out there changes, technology changes, people's attitude changes, the challenges change, but the legislation is, say, fixed. We, we haven't got a process of revising, reviewing the, the legislation every two years, with the pace at which life technology and everything changes, we need to have a, a, a legislative environment that is by design reviewed periodically, not once in a lifetime, periodically, so that legislation remains relevant. For example, the issue of plastic. Since we introduced, plastic has moved. Plastic is, we call it plastic, but plastic today is not plastic 15 years ago when the legislation was introduced. But the legislation is still the same. And you're supposed to comply with it, but you look at this legislation and see plastic in my hand today is not what I'm supposed to. You throw it away, you, you use some derogatory term on the government, and you say, ach, that, ach, that, and then we move on. Yeah. And we've we got to get out of that attitude. We've got to say life, business is real. And the business of environment is 
particularly important for us in South Africa. And let me very briefly say what I mean. South Africa's environment is blessed, literally, as an, in economic terms, it's a natural and national resource. That, as we sit here, despite all the failures that we have as a nation, not just a government, it generates about 1.2 to 1.3 million jobs. Right? That is something to treasure, something to take care of in any country, especially in countries with unemployment that we have. So, are we seeing our environment and our sustainability in this context? Or do we see it because somebody in, uh, in The Hague or somebody in, in London decided that the environment is important because the king has uh, become environmentalist and we must do something about it? <laughs> I mean, let's get real. Business in South Africa is about our life. It's about uh, a million plus jobs multiplied by five is about six million people. It's more than 10 to 15% of our population. Let's, so that's what we need to do. Let, let's park there. We're running out of time and I'll get into trouble with my bosses. Um, <laughs> but I just want to leave the audience with a, a bit of hope. I'm a journalist, naturally cynic, naturally <laughs> negative. Desne. Is there anything you're hopeful about, uh, hopeful when it comes to the approach of business uh, addressing the climate crisis? Is there any ho- anything that makes you hopeful or excited? <laughs> <laughs> Most of our businesses today are in survival mode. We're struggling. High inflation means high interest rates. Those that are reliant on external debt, and I talk like this because I used to be a banker, so forgive me, that are reliant on external debt are having to repay their debt um, um, twice over because interest rates have, have gone up. And that's my biggest fear, is that today we are more in survival mode than we are in trying to protect the environment, um, protect our, yeah, ensuring that our environment um, survives. So I'm not even going to leave it up to business. Um, I think each of us in this audience, and as Iraj said, we are all participants in, in the energy crisis. We are, we are all contributors also to the crisis. If not because we are doing nothing, we are not being um, active enough. So I I want to leave it to each one of us to do our little bit. And I think there is a lot we can do at grassroots levels, Um, starting with something that no one in the audience is going to like, but we need to think about it, and it's our own consumerism. Most of us sitting here are the one percenters, right? Most of us are the one percenters. And I asked Iraj earlier this, um, this morning, I said, today, I was like, how old is your car? The average <laughs> middle-class South African changes their car every four or five years. My car is 20 years old, and it still goes perfectly fine. If we start with our own behavior, it then makes it easy for us to then engage with our pension funds, because we know what we're speaking about. We are physically making a difference. We feel it. We understand it. Then you can go and argue to somebody else to to make a change. And Iraj, 
honestly, the average person has no idea where their pensions are invested. And I think for us to expect the average person to engage with their asset managers and say, don't put my money here, put it there. Oh, and by the way, I still want an 11% return because I want to retire by the time I'm 65. Is it, yeah, is maybe asking for, for yeah. too much. But I think it, so I think in short, what I want to say is that it behooves each one of us in the audience today and those of us sitting over here to also um, play, our, play our little bit. But we, we do, as Iraj said earlier on, we need to be um, active. We need to push business. We are business. We all work for somebody or some company or run our own business. So everyone in this, in this room has a role to play. Wendy, last bite, very quickly, I'm pushing the time boundaries here. Sure. What makes you hopeful? So my car's 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to respond to your question about do we know where our pension funds are and a message of hope. So WWF, we asked the same question. We have worked for many years now and partnered and collaborated with Sunlum Investment Management. There is a fund available called the Sunlum Living Planet Fund. It is one of many choices out there. And so we're hopeful just with that one example and many other funds that we are designing and implementing. And so we want to be part of that change. So please reach out to us. And, and yeah, let's be part of making it happen. Wendy Engel, Desna Leaf Camp, and Iraj Obedian, thank you so thank you. much. I've learned a lot. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.